Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. In today's program, we'll continue our march through the in brief statements of the Catechism of the Catholic Church as they relate to the sixth and the ninth commandments of God Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. In creating the human being, male and female, God gives personal dignity in a manner where one is equal to the other. It falls to each one, man and woman, to recognize and accept his sexual identity. In this passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we do not see ourselves being made transgendered or bisexual. We see ourselves the way God has made us, male or female. This passage of the Catechism of the Catholic Church does not cite Genesis. However, that account of creation in the beginning, God created them male and female. He created them to the divine image. He created them. This is understood, Adam and Eve. The personal dignity, where one is equal to the other, reminds us of the lie, which is machismo. There have been cultures, and even are still cultures, where women are so degraded as if they were mere property or objects for the man, virtual slaves in certain cultures. This is contrary to this sure and certain teaching of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God gives personal dignity where one is equal to the other, male and female. All of us, potentially adopted children of God, all of us sinners, all of us in need of God's grace and mercy, all of us called to heaven, please God, we answer his call, moved by his grace, falling to each one, each man, each woman, to recognize and accept his sexual identity. I am a man. The ladies say, I am a woman. The catechism here does not seem to buy into contemporary confusions of the matter. Christ is the model of chastity. All the baptized are called to lead a chaste life, each one according to his proper state of life. Sometimes objections are raised. Oh, the church is down on sexuality or sex or beating up gay people or whatever. Here we see how beautiful the truth of the matter is. Christ is the model of chastity, and all the baptized are called to lead a chaste life. Not just men, not just women, not just those attracted to members of the opposite sex, not just those who are attracted to the same uh, sex. All of us are called to lead a chaste life. In English, the word chaste, C-H-A-S-T-E, sounds like but is different from chased like when you run around a track you chase the rabbit at the racetrack different the proper state of life are you married that's a state of life are you a consecrated virgin or a celibate cleric are you seeking to become married these are different states of life and marital chastity is different from celibate chastity Chastity signifies the integration of sexuality in the person. It is comprised of the learning of personal mastery. Some years ago, that duet singing couple, Sonny and Cher, had a little girl whom they named Chastity. It's not just a little girl's name, however. Now she's a grown woman. 
it's a virtue, opposite the vice of lust. When the Catechism reminds us here that chastity signifies the integration of sexuality in the person, we know other examples of integration, integration of schools, not just in Little Rock, but even in Clinton, Tennessee. We had had great progress bringing people together. So chastity is an integration of sexuality in the person, bringing together those things which attract us, those things which repulse us, and acting accordingly with temperance and propriety. I remember once speaking with a counselor who said, you need to know your seduction profile. What attracts you? Blondes or redheads or brunettes? Tall, short? Is it genius or brilliance or humor? Athletic prowess? What What is it that attracts you? And also to know what is attractive in you so that you don't seduce others even as you do not seek to be seduced. Very important. Once we have this integration within us, then we can approach personal mastery. Chastity is personal mastery. We're not dominated by our attractions or our desires, but we master them, we dominate them. The power of our soul, the power of our will, the power of our knowledge, our desire to be saints. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. In holy marriage, a couple gives themselves to each other. This personal gift of self presupposes self-possession. You can't give what you don't have. Among the sins gravely contrary to chastity, the Catechism continues, faults cited are masturbation, fornication, pornography, and homosexual practices. When the Catechism uses the word gravely, that should set off bells and whistles. Grave sins, mortal sins, serious sins, bells and whistles, what to avoid, what to repent. A grave sin, a mortal sin, a serious sin, something weighty. How do we know what's weighty? How do we know what's grave? Well, the commandments of God. There are ten commandments. The sixth and ninth commandments are the ones relating to sexuality. There are other sins, and we're to avoid them too. There are other virtues besides chastity, and we're to embrace them likewise. Masturbation and autoeroticism, seeking sexual gratification apart from the marital, the nuptial embrace, apart from love-making. The sexual pleasure is good, but in the context of holy marriage, open to the transmission of life, not autoeroticism. In Spanish, the sixth commandment doesn't say, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It says, Thou shalt not commit impure acts. When I was teaching the children in the school, they would say, Oh, well, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm not married. She's not married, so let's go crazy. No, no, no. That's called fornication. And so here, the catechism seals the deal. Fornication is a sin contrary to chastity. Adultery involves one or both of the parties engaging in sexual activity with someone who is not their spouse. Fornication, neither of them are married, and they're still engaging in sexual activity without the benefit of marriage. Pornography, beholding another. Ours is a voyeuristic age. Webcams, God knows what's on the cable TV, 
DVDs, videos, magazines, pictures. When people engage in pornographic activity, there's all sorts of trouble going around. The actors, so-called, the producers, publishers, and then, of course, the consumers. Well, you say, that person in the video isn't married to anybody. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, maybe she's not anybody's wife yet. Maybe he's not somebody's husband yet. But the time will come. And in point of fact, we know that we're not married to those depicted. To take a James Bond theme song out of context, for your eyes only. This self-revelation is meant for marriage. The husband for his wife and the wife for his husband. For her husband only. The homosexual practices here are cited likewise as sins gravely contrary to chastity. This is a difficult saying in 2010, for it would seem in certain quarters that sodomy is celebrated as a sacrament of secularity. Here we have a hard truth. We cannot be saints without the grace of God, and God calls us all to be saints. Whether we are attracted to those of our same gender, same sex, or to those of the other gender, the other sex. Just because one is attracted one way or another does not mean one must succumb to one's disordered attractions. The alliance, the covenant, that the spouses have freely contracted, the vows made, implies a faithful love. Fidelity, one of the essential properties of holy marriage. This faithful love, this contract freely entered into, confers upon the spouses, this man, this woman, this husband, this wife, the obligation to keep the indissolubility of their marriage. We spoke about indissolubility earlier when treating the sacrament of holy marriage. I think the great examples for our day are bouillon cubes for soup, they dissolve in the hot water, but marriage does not dissolve in dissolubility. Alka-Seltzer dissolves in the water, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, so your stomach can be at rest. Marriage, however, does not dissolve in dissolubility. Sexual sins often have a tendency of wounding terribly the marriage, but even, God forbid, they should occur. Healing and reconciliation should be sought. Forgiveness should be sought and received, the breach healed. Fecundity is a good fruitfulness, fecundity. Fecundity is a gift. Fecundity is an end of marriage, a goal of marriage. Why get married? Because God might bless us with children, please God. In giving life, the spouses, this husband, this wife, and them together, without any other, participate in the fatherhood of God. God who is good, God who gives us himself in our being, in faith, in the sacraments. We pray, we believe in the Lord, the giver of life. And God does give the soul, but God asks the cooperation of the parents to give the body, the matter. We only wear prescription glass lenses on our eyes, for our eyes, contact lenses, what have you, because they don't work right. They don't work well. Vision is blurry. That a man and a woman, a husband and wife, are able to conceive, this is a good thing. But our culture treats it as if it is something 
which needs to be thwarted. Oh yes, the organ works, but let's let's hinder its proper exercise. Contraceptive sex is like an eating disorder. It is a disorder. We want the pleasure of the taste of the food, but we don't want to have the waistline to match our eating habits. If we're anxious to not have children, we should be careful in our activity, in our behavior. And when one makes love with one's spouse, often the good God, who is the Lord and the giver of life, blesses that union with the greatest gift God gives in marriage, the child. The regulation of births represents one of the aspects of responsible fatherhood and motherhood. Mother Church does not ask husbands and wives to have 10, 15, 20, God knows how many kids. The Church asks the parents to be responsible, and if you can survive having so many kids, and if you can subsidize, afford to raise so many kids, and if you're generous enough, thanks be to God. But if you only have the wherewithal to have 1.2, I don't know what counts as the point two of the child, <laughs> the church is fine with that. So long as the means used to regulate, to moderate, to space the births is in conformity with the natural moral law. The regulation of births represents one of the aspects of responsible fatherhood and motherhood. The legitimate intentions of the spouses do not, however, justify recourse to means which are morally unacceptable. For example, direct sterilization, vasectomies, elective hysterectomies, or contraception. There are all sorts of different kinds of contraception, prophylactics, intrauterine devices, chemicals, the pills, so-called. There are lots of pills on the counter, but we all know what we mean when we hear the pill. So often, these different things introduce further problems. Not only the vice of intemperance or the vice of lust, crimes against chastity, but risk of stroke or blood clot or worse, if you can imagine, and you can. Adultery and divorce, polygamy and free union are likewise grave offenses to the dignity of marriage. Divorce separating what God has joined, adultery against fidelity, polygamy, many women for the one man. While the Catechism here doesn't specifically cite polyandry, many men for the one lady, it is understood to likewise be an offense gravely against the dignity of marriage. Free union, sometimes in our day they talk about hooking up, friends with benefits. Free union means not even a civil union, not even going to the justice of the peace, which is forbidden to Catholics. Catholics are to have their marriage witnessed by the priest and the assembly of the faithful in the context of the sacred liturgy with the two witnesses. Whoever looks at a woman with covetousness in his heart has already committed adultery with her. These words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, come off the lips of the Lord Jesus. Likewise, reminding us of the beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Positivistically speaking, since the passage says, whoever looks at a woman with covetousness in his heart has already committed an adultery with her, 
Some would attempt to say, "Oh, it's okay to look with covetousness at a man or at a child or at whoever," but no, we know that all of this is wrong, and we can thank God for those who have set a good example by publicly repenting、uh, sins of this sort. Some years ago, President Carter said, "I have lusted in my heart," and he begged, and please God, he has received. The mercy of the Lord, and please God, we can all learn from His good example what not to do: not to look upon another with covetousness. So often it begins in our hearts, in our minds, in our eyes, and then we act out on our bad thoughts, our bad desires, our bad wishes. The ninth commandment, "Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's wife or husband," as the case might be, keeps guard against the covetous or concupiscence of the flesh. When the movie Lord of the Rings came out, and you saw the way that ring affected people, my precious, my precious ring, Gollum Schmeagol, that little funny guy, he coveted the ring. Concupiscence is one of the consequences, one of the sad consequences of the fall of original sin. There are different sorts of concupiscence. The ninth commandment keeps us on guard for sins of the flesh, taking to oneself. Concupere, remember, little Cupid. The struggle against carnal. Corporeal bodily covetousness happens by the purification of heart and the practice practice of temperance. So we ask the Lord to purify our hearts, our desires, but we also are called to practice temperance. Remember, little Goldilocks. This bed is too hard. This bed is too soft. This bed is just right. This porridge is too hot. This porridge is too cold. This porridge is just right. Goldilocks could be a patron of temperance. Not too hard, not too soft, not too cold, not too hot. In regards to the virtue of chastity, remains not too much. Once there was a priest speaking with a couple, saying, "You guys, to make love is good, but too much will rot your teeth." Like candy, how about that? Practice, practice, practice. Purity of heart allows us to see God. He gives us now a vision of all things according to God. It allows us to see the other as an adopted son or daughter of God. This is how God sees us. And when we keep the commandments of God, we look upon each other with the eyes of God. The purification of heart demands prayer. Our hearts will not be pure if we do not pray to God who purifies. Practice of chastity. There you have it again. Not only the practice of temperance, but the practice of chastity. And if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Practice makes perfect. With God's grace, purity of intention and look. 
if I go into a situation with bad motives, with bad intentions, bad may very well be the result, the consequence. If I look around me with innocent eyes, all is well, or should be. But if I am looking around with a view to looking, to finding, to seeing things I should not see, this will not lead to purity in my heart or my deeds. Purity of heart demands the reserve, which is patience, modesty, and discretion. Patience, we wait until we're married. We wait until we're home. Modesty, so beware of the public displays of affection. Discretion, the same. Modesty, likewise. Do we have to show everybody our biceps or how, how strong our thighs are? Do we have modest clothes? Are we putting everything on display? Reserve preserves the intimacy of the person. So often, people limit intimacy to lacy apparel and to conjugal activity, to making love, the nuptial embrace. But intimacy is more than that. What are our deepest joys, our deepest sorrows, our deepest fears, our deepest hopes? When we share these things, they are no less a part of intimacy than the other. To be reserved means we don't wear our heart on our sleeve or our show all our cards all at once to just any who comes by. In this program we've gone over the sixth and ninth commandments of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So often the church is criticized as if she's fixated on sexuality and sexual morality. However, Perhaps it is more the world which is fixated on it. If advertising, entertainment, have anything to say about it. Some years ago there was the movie Bruce Almighty. And Jim Carrey's character was depicting a man who was given by God the Lord's job. And all Ten Commandments were depicted. Well, either some were kept or some were broken but repented, except for two. And they were the sexual sins, sins of lust or infidelity. Ours is an age which says there is no such thing as sin. But if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we know that there is such a thing as sin, for this is what brought our Lord to Calvary's height. He has paid the price, the price of our debt. We had a debt we could not pay, but he bailed us out. He is our big brother in the best sense of the term, not in the communistic fashion. But he is the firstborn of all creation. 
In him we live and move and have our being. Our Lord was never catting around. Our Lord was not a lustful man. He was pure of heart, as is and was his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. If we call ourselves the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too will be pure of heart. We shall look upon each other as temples of the Lord, as adopted children of heaven, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We will uphold the dignity of holy marriage between one man and one woman, and we will safeguard the marital act, the nuptial embrace, love-making in a human manner as a special moment in holy marriage and not engaging in it apart from holy marriage, that special union between one man and one woman for life, open to the gift of children. We've spent earlier programs speaking about the commandments of God, the first three, where we show our love directly for Almighty God, by having no other gods before Him, by loving and revering and using in a good manner His holy name, and by keeping holy the Sabbath, which until the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was kept on Saturday, but since the resurrection, all Christians have been keeping holy the Sabbath on Sunday to commemorate that first Easter, Resurrection Day, and also the Pentecost, the patronal feast for us at Holy Ghost. But today we have gone over two of the seven commandments which express our love for neighbor and for self. Before this, we had gone over the fourth commandment to honor our father and mother, the family as a nuclear unit, this basic cell of society, as well as the wider understanding of family being society. The fifth commandment, not to kill. Next time, we'll go over the seventh and tenth, not to covet our neighbor's goods and not to steal our neighbor's goods. There's some linkage between the sixth and the ninth and the seventh and the tenth because they deal with similar realities, coveting and then taking, but coveting another and coveting possessions. That's another difference. And in a further program, we'll go over the Eighth Commandment, not to bear false witness, as well as the commandments of the Church and the Lord's Prayer. We cannot keep any of these commandments, nor even the smallest part of any of the commandments of God, without the grace the Lord gives us, the grace he won at so great a price on Calvary's height. Grace first poured out upon us in the saving waters of baptism, renewed at the altar of God, when we well receive the sacred body and blood, soul and divinity of the Lord in Holy Communion, and even renewed in a good confession, when we repent with all our hearts, all our sins, our words, our deeds, what we have done and what we fail to do. 
let us be sure to seek and receive the grace we need to be the saints we're called to be, to be found pleasing in the sight of Almighty God in the here and now, so that our hereafter might be blessed forever, that we might hear those sweet and blessed words on the lips of our Savior, good and faithful servant, come share your master's joy. Until next time, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.